Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 167, my word of Dunzo. It is me, Sissy Spacek, and I am so excited that you're here today. You picked a really, really good day to come over. <laughs> um, we're talking about Dirty today. We're talking about Extina. We're talking about Stripped. We're talking about all of the fucking things. And I, I mean, look, today is the day that we've all been waiting for. And to be honest, like, I'm a little bit nervous. I will be completely vulnerable with you. I feel like I may have put the tiniest bit of pressure on myself to complete this appropriately and deliver the goods. This is a milestone for sure. This is a milestone episode for sure. So I don't know. I just want to make sure that I express all of this pent up these 18-year-old feelings that I have about this album and this time period, the dramatic changes in Christina's public image, and the lasting effect that it had on pop culture and females in pop music. Um, it's it's a lot. And by the way, yeah, uh, Stripped is 18 fucking years old. Not to swerve you completely off the highway, but this album is almost 20 years old. Now, I myself am a dumb bitch with my head in the clouds who likes to dream. And for some reason, I thought that I would be able to, oh, you know, cover the entire stripped era in one episode. I'm a fucking idiot. Of course you can. So this is us sort of getting into stripped. This is sort of the beginning of stripped. This is the recording of the album. Um, I think we make it to the end up to the release of Dirty as a single and I have another really, really incredible Rolling Stone article um, that came out during this time as a follow-up to the one that we talked about last week. So that'll be really fun. I do want to do some housekeeping before we continue the episode. And this is, I mean, I can make a poll or like whatever, whatever you guys want me to do. You can DM me. I'll probably make a poll. But so obviously I want to do some bonus content for Christina, right? And I realized the other day that I still have like maybe two episodes of being Bobby Brown to cover. I thought that I had finished it. And then I realized that I have one episode that I still need to release with somebody that I recorded that I won't spoil. And I have a couple more to do. There's a Christmas one, which is actually on par with, uh, you know, Christmas or whatever. Um, but I also really want to release some Christina bonus content. What I was thinking was that I would do some album reviews for Christina on Patreon. Um, because I can't really get as deep into the albums as I'd like to, obviously, doing doing these episodes. So we could start from the beginning and just kind of work our way through and like really, really break down these albums and the songs, and I'll bring on guests, and that'll be super fun. Um, but are, I mean, do you want the rest of being Bobby Brown? I, I, I'm sorry. First of all, I'm sorry. I... Really, truly thought that I had completed it. I am sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like a fucking dumb bitch. I didn't realize. Maybe because the way that I'm illegally watching it on YouTube, 
Um, I thought that it had ended. I, I don't know. I don't know what the hell happened, but we can still do that. That's not, you know, or if you're totally over it, we don't have to finish it. Um, I don't know. Let me know. DM me. You, you tell me. What I could end up doing is just releasing them both. Like if you, <laughs> if that's not too much of a fucking Troy overload, I could just release them both to Patreon throughout the week. Um, maybe I'll just do that. I mean, it's fucking Christmas. It's Christmas. We are in the middle of a pandemic. We are living post-apocalyptic, whether we realize it or not. So, yeah, I'll just, you know what? I'll release both. I've settled it. I'll release both to Patreon, and you can decide what you want to listen to. Anyway, back to the episode at hand. So, up to where we are in our Christina timeline, she's released this monumental pop record that has now positioned itself as one of the most important records in history. Um, changed the industry, changed pop music, all the things, hit us like a meteor. And then she successfully crossed over into the Latin market and was a participant in one of the most successful, what a lot of people say is the most successful uh, music (laughs) collaboration of all time. So at this particular point, Christina Aguilera has the world in the palm of her hand and she knows it. Like anything she decides to do at this point is going to be huge because there's all of this pressure on her to release a follow-up album and what is she going to do and is she finally going to figure out what kind of artist she is and is she going to stay making pop music because all she does is complain about how much she hates being a pop star so what is she going to do now i mentioned previously that the stripped album was the result of christina firing her original manager which was this huge deal and it was around that time that she basically confronted not only Ron Fair, but everybody at her label and basically told them that she would refuse to do another album if they didn't back the fuck off. If they tried to control her in any way, if they tried to control the sound or what she looked like or what she said during interviews, uh, what the music would be, she was going to not do it. Um, And all these people had so much money riding on her that I think it, genuinely scared them christina basically wanted complete and total control over every single aspect of this album and i mean i guess now that like that is something that wouldn't be such a huge deal or people would just sort of write it into somebody's story as like a marketing thing like a taylor swifty kind of thing but at the time in the space that christina aguilera occupied as the pop star who just released genie in a bottle and what a girl wants and come on over is her most most recent work i mean she had done lady marmalade but that wasn't specifically her song it was unheard of to imagine one of these girls a britney or a jessica or a mandy or any of the girls being like guess what none of you guys have any control over anything having to do with this entire work of art you don't control what songs are put out you don't control what they sound like you don't control what i'm wearing when i release them you don't control the interviews that i do or what i say during them at the time that was profound and the really interesting thing is that during the time that christina was touring her debut album her producers and her management gave her a journal and they told her to start documenting all of the stuff that she was very clearly frustrated with the shit that she was complaining about a lot the stuff about her public image and the way she had sort of been drawn up in a lab by a bunch of fucking mad scientists at rca and you know presented to the world as this new toy they told her to write about her exhaustion and how overworked she was and how 
you know, it had taken this physical toll on her body and all the stuff that people were saying about her body, about her weight. Um, they also told her to write about her dad and, you know, not only the fact that she had survived this like abusive childhood, but also that she had exposed it to the world. And now it was like this, you know, was a part of her sort of origin story that she was abused as a kid. And she's had people like Eminem and, and, Lim and fucking Fred Durst use it against her in weird ways. They also, of course, told her to write about the frustration that she had felt since she signed her contract with RCA in having her career be so obsessively closely tied to somebody that she has nothing in common with. So the lyrics of this album, even though they obviously had been tweaked and, you know, they had writers come in and change things and add things and whatever, the real core of this album was just diary entries from poems and stuff that she had written and been told to write by her management. And I think given what we know now about the music industry and about the pop machine and how all of it works and the way that these kids get treated and kind of chewed up and spat out, it's really incredible that they gave her this opportunity to be like, okay, we really do, we really want to see what kind of artist you are. Like, we really are genuinely interested in seeing how you write music, if you can play instruments, like you claim to love soul and hip hop and, and rock and all of these different things. So like, we really want to see what's going on in your brain. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of so many girls who would have killed for this opportunity, would have literally taken another person's life for the opportunity to be given, you know, a, a pad of paper and a recording studio and a bunch of money and a bunch of producers and been told to do whatever you want because this is not how it works out for many people. So at this particular point, Ron Fair's only job really was to just help make industry stuff happen that she couldn't do herself. As I always say, to punch the numbers. I mean, this is the example of what I talk about all the time. Like, punch the numbers, let the artists do what they want. They'll make amazing work. Like, it's really not that hard of a formula. For example, when it came time to decide like who was going to help produce the album and who was going to be brought in to help write songs and blah, 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 it was Ron's idea to reach out to Scott Storch, who like ended up co-writing almost the entire album. And he helped kind of give Christina her new identity. And I know that I've been, I feel like every time I mention Scott Storch, I tease a Scott Storch episode. I'm always like, God, I need to figure out I need to do like a Corinne Stephens-esque Scott Storch episode because he has literally had sex with, provided drugs to, or whatever to, I mean, literally every girl that I have ever had any sort of interest in. Also, just his general rise and fall. Like, he was so, first of all, he was unknown and then like known as like a tabloid fixture and he was wealthy as fuck. Just, like, a gross, like, square-headed creep. <laughs> but then he, like, lost all of his money and totally fell off. Like, I don't know. I don't think people still produce music with Scott Storch, do they? I don't think. Anyway, so they started recording Stripped in mid-2001. Ron was able to bring in Alicia Keys, the previously mentioned Scott Storch, and possibly the most important piece to this puzzle Linda Perry. Um, the Linda Perry of it all is just so important and iconic. 
And we're going to be talking about Linda Perry for the next couple weeks a lot. During the promo for all the other stuff she was working on, she would tell the press that the creative process for her new album was more of a therapy session than a traditional album recording. And Scott Storch had also brought up a really good point in the MTV documentary that I've been talking about that up to this point, Christina had mostly just been given music and then told to sing it. Like she would show up to the recording studio, she would sing the songs, and then she would leave. She wasn't involved in the production of any of the music that she'd ever really done. So it wasn't expected of her to know how to do any of that stuff. She literally recorded her first album in less than half the time it took to make this one. So in many ways, self-titled was kind of her just getting her feet wet. Like it was like the training wheels for what actually goes into recording a real album that you care about and that you wrote and that you have emotional attachment to. This is a quote from MTV News that came out during the time of the recording process. She said, I feel like it's a new beginning, a reintroduction of myself as a new artist in a way, because for the first time, people are really seeing and getting to know the real me and how I really am. I got a chance to show off all these colors and textures of my love of music and my vocal range. Coming off of the height of being a part of such a big pop craze phenomenon, that imagery of that cookie cutter sweetheart without it being me I just had to take it all down and get it away from me. And that is why I actually named the album Stripped, because it's about being emotionally stripped down and pretty bare to open my soul and heart. And the thing about Stripped was that this was Christina's opportunity to finally make the blues album that she had been dreaming of since she was a little girl and to experiment with all this other music that she had picked up along the way. And she told the producers that she wanted to do an R&B pop album mixed with blues, neo-soul, and rock. She was also adamant on stripping down her vocals because I don't know if you remember this or not, but I think it was more specifically after Lady Marmalade. Christina's voice had become much less about how great and powerful it was and more about how much she oversang as far as the media goes. I think it plays into the whole like, you know, Christina is so desperate to not be seen the way that you see her thing. I have a quote here from USA Today from 2002. It says, Aguilera believes her vocals on Strip represent a raw, ugh, I hate that, rawer, huh, more bare bones approach as well, uh, with less of the ostentatious riffing that has miffed critics in the past. I did the vocal gymnastics thing because it was fun. That's why I like blues too, because you can experiment more with that side of your voice, she says. But I thought the lyrics on the record are so personal, deep, and good that I wanted to make them stand out more than what I could do with my voice technically. Now, something that we've talked about many times over the years, obviously through like different sets of eyes, depending on which pop star we're talking about, is the fact that this specific group of people from this time period, the Britneys, the Christinas, the NSYNCs, the Backstreet Boys, they all graduated from the Michael Jackson school of pop music. These are all people who not only grew up being influenced by Michael, but then went on to work with directors and producers and choreographers and stylists and photographers etc who had also graduated from the michael jackson school of pop so even though the pop explosion itself was super fucking white it was dripping in black culture now i can't speak for all people but i can say for sure that i grew up hearing the adults around me make almost constant comparisons between michael jackson and the content that these like pop stars were putting out into the world this obviously goes without saying but like justin timberlake's entire solo career has been one big 
Michael Jackson drag performance from the very beginning until now, even in even during NSYNC, even probably more so during NSYNC, to the point that he introduced himself as a solo artist with a song that sounds identical to a Michael Jackson song in a music video that from top to bottom is almost the exact same concept as the way you make me feel. And I think that can be said about, I mean, literally, you could do this with every pop star from that time. You look at Britney, I mean, the comparisons are endless, but if you look at, like, I guess Me Against the Music would be the most sort of blatant comparison. Literally, Britney in a 2003 version of a smooth criminal look doing beat-by-beat Michael Jackson choreography. And I'm mentioning all this to say that I don't think you can have the stripped conversation without discussing how much Christina pulled from black culture to make it all happen. Listen, I'm not an idiot. I know that you've been waiting for me to bring it up because you can't ignore it when you talk about stripped. And I think that there's something to be said about the fact that all of these people flocked towards a more, in quotes, R&B slash hip hop sound when it came time for them to, in quotes, mature and transition to the next phase in their careers. You know, where it's time to like prove to the world that they're not child stars anymore or whatever. So yes, of course, you have to talk about Christina Aguilera showing up to places with braids and do-rags wrapped around her head. And of course, you have to talk about the fact that Christina all of a sudden changed her way of speaking. (laughs) All of a sudden, Christina Aguilera uh, had a black scent out of nowhere. All of a sudden, she sounded like a girl who grew up in fucking Detroit. And we've had the cultural appropriation conversation on this podcast many times. And I've been very clear about the fact that, you know, my thoughts on this topic aren't as black and white, no pun intended, as most people's have become over time. And I think the term cultural appropriation has just become so misused that it now lives in this weird place in media where people just throw it around all the time. They're always like just throwing out the term cultural appropriation willy nilly. And to me, the appropriation of culture is harmful and it's like rooted in something really dark. Even if you don't see it as dark on the surface, like deep down, it's something gross. But I also think that there's a major difference between being respectfully inspired by other cultures versus taking it and claiming it as your own. I think that those are two very different things. I think, you know, to visit a country and become so inspired by the fashion or the art or the music or the food or whatever that you take that experience and put it into something creative that you're doing or you come home and learn how to make whatever. That's how the world continues to spin. But I always use the example of the Kardashians as what it means to inappropriately take ownership of other cultures, to take black culture and, and, and blatantly steal from it, to, to look through magazines and books and Tumblr pages and whatever and literally steal and then market it to a bunch of white idiot girls that don't know what the fuck they're even taking. Like the Kardashians are the fast fashion of black culture, if that makes sense. I think stripped era Christina Aguilera falls somewhere in between. It's it's murky. Honestly, I don't know where, but she falls somewhere in between. Now, does it make me cringe to see Christina show up to the VMAs in a do-rag? Of course it does. But I also, I guess, I don't fault her. I don't fault Christina for taking her influences 
which were black blues singers and people like Whitney and Mariah and Michael and tapping into that for when it comes time for her to make art that actually represents who she thinks she is. We also have to take into account that this is a girl whose true identity has been caged for so long that she's now become known as the girl who literally doesn't know who she is. So it's messy and complicated. I think when it comes to the music, you know, it's incredible. And Christina Aguilera, I mean, we've been saying for weeks now that since she was eight years old, has been living, laughing, and loving blues music, and that's who she is. But like I said, showing up to the VMAs with a tan so dark that you're unrecognizable and a fucking do-rag and braids in your hair is a lot. Like, I'm sorry, but it's a lot. And I know that there are Christina stands listening to these episodes and like, I understand. I'm, I'm trying really hard to be as fair as I can. I really legitimately am. But there are certain things that I'm just not going to ignore. Like, this makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I also think it's interesting to point out that everyone's favorite Christina Aguilera record is one that people likely wouldn't even allow her to make in the year 2020. Like, maybe the music would sound the same, but if at any point she showed up anywhere looking the way she did in 2002, Twitter would have her head spit-roasting before the sun went down. So I don't know. I don't have the answers. I don't claim to. I just think it's interesting to revisit these things in the year 2020 because as you know, like cancel culture in itself confuses me because I don't understand the differences between things people get canceled for and don't get canceled for and the blatant things that people should get canceled for that get ignored out of the inconvenience of the public just not wanting to cancel those people. Um, so when you look back at Christina Aguilera showing up places with braids and dreads and shit, I mean, is that not the same as digging up an old tweet. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like the whole thing is just really confusing and weird to me. I have another little quote from USA Today from 2002. It says, the tracks on Stripped also reveal more of an urban influence for Christina. In addition, Alicia Keys, rappers Redman and Lil' Kim make guest appearances. She says, I've always been a hip hop fan, so that's going to come out more in my music now. She cites Dirty featuring Redman as the hardest, most beat driven song. It's about being 21 and, you know, getting down and dirty and getting a little gritty uh, and street with my friends and not worrying about looking pretty or caring about who's around. Now, let's finally get into Linda Perry's involvement in this album. And let's get into it deeply, please. I, I beg of you. Let's get into it deeply and revisit Christina's long running feud with Pink because it all ties together. To understand the real backstory between Pink and Christina Aguilera, one would have to revisit Pink's 2001 album, Misunderstood. I'm not saying misunderstood because I just can't bear it. Misunderstood falls so perfectly for me into the category of albums that were sort of like, over time have become dismissed or trivial because it's like early 2000s shit. But this album was so prolific in the sense that Pink had very publicly mastered the pop star transition. We all know that Pink was introduced as a sexy R&B girl, and then she met Linda Perry, and Linda Perry helped reintroduce her to the world as herself. And not only that, but she wrote a bunch of songs about the experience of rebranding herself. Like, she let her fans into 
the experience of her reintroducing herself as a new artist, even to the point of naming her manager, L.A. Reid, in her songs and telling the public that she was told specifically by him that he could make her a bigger star if she changed everything about who she was. She wrote about her abusive family life and her painful childhood experience. She wrote about the constant comparisons between she and Britney Spears at the beginning of her career, even though she was something completely different and had no desire to be her. And I'm sure that you could see where this is going. So fast forward to Christina wanting Linda to produce her stripped album. Mind you, we've now lived through Lady Marmalade and, and Pink has stated very publicly that she doesn't fuck with Christina and they didn't get, a, she was honest about the fact that they did not get along during the recording of the song and they almost physically fought each other during the filming of the music video. Now, this would be me speculating, but I would imagine Pink probably talked a lot of shit about Christina to Linda. Based on Pink's statement about the situation, which we'll get into in a minute, I would imagine that Linda may have been a sounding board for Pink to vent to, you know, all of her frustrations about having to do, you know, that video with her and how, like, much of a diva she was and et cetera, et cetera. This is a quote from Digital Spy in 2016. It says, Beautiful has become Christina's career-defining song, and it's often cited as her best. However, despite the song's sentiments of acceptance and self-love, there's a bit of a bitchy backstory. Linda Perry worked with Pink on her 2001 album Misunderstood and played the track to her during some recording sessions. Perry was then introduced to Christina. When Christina came over to my house to start working, she asked me to play some songs and break the ice. I played Beautiful for her, and she comes over to the piano, and she's like, can you please demo that for me and write the lyrics out because I want it. The fact that Perry had given Christina beautiful did not impress Pink. I took it really personally when Perry started working with other artists, particularly the artists that I don't like, Pink said. I don't think imitation is the highest form of flattery. I think it's annoying. We had a falling out and I took it really personally. Perry recalls the spat in a similar fashion. Pink kind of left me on my own and I resented her for that. We never have been the same since then. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think happened in this situation, and then you can tell me what you think of what I think. <laughs> so I believe that Pink was undoubtedly hooking up with Linda Perry, and you can't really convince me otherwise. Not even money would change my opinion. Now, whether they were fully, like, you know, in a relationship or just hooking up or whatever is to be determined, but I think there was definitely some intimacy during that time in many, many ways. I also think it's likely that Christina started hooking up with Linda Perry during the recording of Stripped. When you look at videos of Linda and Christina together during this time, they are dating. They are so intimate with each other and so flirtatious and they're like a mar an old married couple. Christina was like 20 slash 21 years old going through this extremely experimental phase in her life. A real, like, I'll try anything once kind of gig. Not to mention, as I've stated previously, you know, Christina was known for making moves on the girls. That was her thing. Like, Christina used to try and hook up with the girls all the time. And Linda is in the studio with both of these girls, basically acting as a therapist 
getting them to open up about all this really deep, dark, intense shit in their lives and being their sounding board while they're having emotional breakdowns and, you know, she's also Linda fucking Perry. She's iconic. It all checks out for me. I don't know about you, but for me, it all checks out. It makes complete and total sense that Pink was like, not only are you hooking up with my nemesis, but you're doing it while creating an album with her that is loosely based on mine behind my back after, by the way, I've told you all the stuff that she's done to me. Now, obviously, as we continue this series, um, we're going to talk more about Linda Perry. I have this really amazing quote um, from Rolling Stone with Linda that really alludes to a relationship, but I might have to save it for next week because this ran, my notes ran really long for this. Anyway, in the months prior to releasing the album, Christina did an interview with the New York Times, and I have a few quotes from that. This is like before the release of the album, but I think after the release of Dirty. It says, it's been three years since Christina Aguilera released her first album, a self-titled disc that sold 8 million copies. The album established her as a teen pop star, a first-rate diva, a sex symbol, and according to one list, one of the country's worst-dressed celebrities. She insists that the long wait for the follow-up album may turn out to be a blessing in disguise. I wanted to get out of the spotlight for a little bit and let people forget about the old image. The whole vision for this record was to be really raw and very real, just really bearing who I actually am. This next part coming up just screams 2002. It says, Jane, a mischievous magazine aimed at young women, calls this technique a make-under, the opposite of a makeover. Every month, the magazine finds a subject and convinces her to wear less makeup and let her hair down. Of course, achieving this new look often requires more sophisticated makeup, a high-maintenance haircut, and a team of stylists. The subject learns the same thing Aguilera is learning, that becoming yourself can actually be hard work. Right now, it's make-under season in the pop world. The young singers who rose to fame during the teen boom are scrambling to stay relevant. This fall, NSYNC's lead singer Justin Timberlake is to release a solo album that eschews electronic sounds in favor of live instruments. On her most recent album, Misunderstood, Pink transformed herself into a rock and roll rebel, singing about family strife and railing against her enemies. Even Britney Spears seems determined to come clean. She recently declared, until about a year ago, I was trying to fit an image and trying to be somebody that I'm not. For any pop star, especially a former teen pop icon, individualism is a team sport. Like her first album, Stripped was created by a committee. The difference is that this time, she says she's running the committee. She helped write the songs and choose the producers, and anyone with old-fashioned ideas about what the album should sound like was quickly left behind. Certain people just don't get it, and that's why those people don't get to have songs on the record, she says. It should also be stated, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, but Christina and her boyfriend, um, George Santos, had broken up during the recording process of the album, and they have this really, well, they used to have this really strange relationship where he still worked for her after they broke up. I don't know how that wasn't more public or talked about more. Maybe, again, it's just one of those things that I didn't register or take in. Um, but yeah, I mean, he he was like working for her and touring with her and dancing as her backup dancer after they had broken up and also auditioning for her. The whole thing is really fucking weird. We'll talk about it. Now that we've done a bunch of housekeeping, I do want to get into the conversation of the actual music and we obviously have to start with Dirty. Not only because Dirty was the first single from the album, but it was the world's introduction to X-Tina. And 
I mean, you could obviously make the argument that all the people leading pop music during this time were like gravitating towards like a sexier image naturally because they were getting older. They were growing up. They were much more removed from the Mickey Mouse Club days. But Christina didn't just lean into being sexier. She kicked the fucking door in. Christina walked in like the Kool-Aid man with fucking nipple rings and chaps. I have theories, of course, but as an outsider, in my opinion, I think the reason that this time period resonates so much with people, and I think that I've said this before, but I think that it's because it was so genuine and it came from such an honest, pure place. And I've said in the past that I felt like Christina at times has fallen victim to the Madonna effect where you feel like you have to completely reinvent yourself and, you know, have this like new identity every time you release an album or whatever to signify the end of an era. And I don't think Christina's in quotes eras have always worked because they don't always seem to come from a genuine place. And that's where I think so many pop stars oftentimes get it wrong And I ask myself the same thing about Gaga sometimes, where I'm like, sometimes I feel like Gaga goes into a new album cycle doing things that she thinks people want to see her do versus, you know, when Madonna used to do that shit, when she decided to like be spiritual and hippy dippy or, you know, get into kink and BDSM, it was always because she just wanted to do it. It was just like a genuine random thing that she wanted to explore. It wasn't like, well, now the fans will want me to do kink you know it was just like a random thing she wanted to do and all that to say that I think stripped is the closest Christina ever came to getting it right and I think you can feel that because of the way people connect to it I mean it still has so much pop culture relevance it's still the thing people ask her about the most it's still the era of her career that people like to revisit the most and And people put this album on such a respected pedestal. You know, it's easily one of the greatest albums of all time. It's up there with like a miseducation of Lauryn Hill kind of thing. Like it's really stripped as iconic. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just think it, it, I think that that's why it resonates with people. The other really interesting thing about Dirty specifically that I don't think many people know is that it's actually sort of like a continuation of a song that already exists called Let's Get Dirty by Redman. And that's the reason that Redman is in the song because it was inspired by his song. You know, it's not that deep. You get it. Now, if you thought that I was going to finish this entire episode without reading several quotes from the 2002 issue of Rolling Stone, as I previously mentioned, featuring Christina Aguilera, you are absolutely out of your fucking mind The way Rolling Stone has narrated her career from the beginning, to be honest with you, has been hands down the most interesting thing so far. That first issue of Rolling Stone, where they go to McDonald's, will live with me for the, I promise you, will live with me for the rest of my life. It says, Christina Aguilera is on her way to the studio. She's running late, but she declares that she has a headache coming on and she needs to eat. Allison calls ahead to one of Christina's preferred restaurants, Houston's in the Valley. In the car, Aguilera puts on Redman's hit from last year, Let's Get Dirty. It was after loving Let's Get Dirty that she approached its producer, Rockwilder, and requested a backing track. With the same kind of intensity and explosive beat and feeling, what he gave her turned into dirty. She says the spelling is just making it different and whatnot, and not inspired by Nelly's hot in here. 
They also considered dirty, D-I-R-T-E-E, dirty, D-I-R-R-D-Y, and dirty, D-I-R-D-Y. And I know that I said this last week about Lady Marmalade, but it still remains true. Being a teenager during the release of this song made being a teenager in 2002 so much fucking fun. If you were a younger person listening to this, or even maybe much older, this song coming out during the peak of your like hormones racing and you being a horny pimple faced teenager, it sent all of us into full on fembot. Like, I, I mean, I can't even describe what it felt like to be a teenager, like at your friend's house, no parents home and you turn fucking dirty on from the computer speakers, girl. I also think Christina's makeover gave girls another type of female entertainer to see themselves in especially during a time when it was it was like really really needed because by 2002 the amount of fucking bobble-headed blonde pop stars that all looked exactly the same was so overwhelming and everything that they were releasing was so underwhelming the other girls you know what i'm talking about like the the cd group girls like the really like we are clawing onto this thing and wringing it dry kind of gals also, not every girl saw themselves in the Madonna whore thing. Like, that was one specific kind of female entertainer. And it wasn't representative of all young girls, obviously. So when Christina showed up covered in sweat and fucking motor oil, twerking and, you know, having her nipples pierced and her vagina pierced and talking about it and having a lip piercing and a, t- and her, a, a tongue piercing and having weird braids in her hair and uh, you know wearing tiny little skirts with her thong showing like it was just so fucking iconic it was like a meteor hitting the earth i have a quote from cracked magazine from 2019 that says the words dirty filthy and nasty snarl like warnings from a guard dog over the image of a woman's ass barely covered by chaps and underwear embellished with an x She straddles a motorbike and rips through an industrial building before being lowered via a cage into a wrestling ring. There are flashes of gloss lips, thick black eyeliner, a Medusa piercing, ratty black and blonde hair, and an outfit the Fast and Furious franchise should probably be paying royalties to. This was our reintroduction to Christina Aguilera on her own terms. After releasing four albums, fresh out of the Mickey Mouse Club class of 94, this was an assertion of her own artistry a statement of intent having switched management and wrestled creative control from RCA. Even though the reinvention had more to do with Britney Spears' jump between Oops, I Did It Again and the Britney album, this was essentially her It's Britney Bitch moment. America's pop sweetheart couldn't come to the phone in 2002. So instead, we got her alter ego, X-Tina. Dirty is one of the most aggressive songs ever written about acting slutty in the club. From the lyrics to the choreography to the way she walks in the video as if she's trying to pop a balloon with each step. Everything about it exudes more bossery than the combined membership of the wing. I also think this album definitely empowered women in all these different ways. Like when you look back, depending on how old you are. And I also have a quote from this journalist named Emily Linder. Uh, She wrote this really interesting article about this song uh, in a blog from 2017. It said, you'll be hearing these songs at strip clubs for years to come. Chris Rock cracked. 
Christina Aguilera had just pulled off a somewhat questionable medley of Dirty and Fighter at the 2003 VMAs, wearing a black and white corset and an intense spray tan. Her hair was wild and onyx, her eyes were lined thick with charcoal. While Rock presumably used his VMA strip club joke backhandedly, there's irony in how empowering those songs actually were to young women. Whether those women were exotic dancers using their sexuality as their strength in a club, or 13-year-old girls learning how to combat the word slut for the first time at school. Aguilera sang about female pleasure, unfulfilled relationships, self-love, and all the things that I was just figuring out. On Fighter, she gained power from dirtbags, and on Unappreciated, she quit a relationship with a guy that didn't realize her worth. On The Voice Within, she preached about finding validation within yourself. She stripped taboo from her sexuality, unearthed double standards, and shielded herself from harsh insults from the media. Meanwhile, she had the whole world telling her to put more clothes on. And to say Christina received backlash for the release of this song would be the understatement of the hour. In trying to separate herself from her pop star cookie cutter image, all it did was ignite this obsessive comparison between old versus new Christina. The conversation surrounding Christina Aguilera after the release of this song was that her music was now being overshadowed by her image and that it was too sexual, especially because she was playing around with BDSM and all of this stuff that was considered super taboo. Um, they also, of course, compared this song to Slay For You because, say it with me, it came out first. And it also didn't help that people hadn't heard the rest of the album. So they didn't have anything to compare these songs to. They didn't have the context to understand that this wasn't an entire album of her shaking her ass in, you know, dirty pool water in Thailand. This was something much deeper. It was actually Christina's idea to release Dirty as the first single against the wishes of the label and Ron Fair and RCA. They were all adamant that she should release Beautiful as the first song, which doesn't really come as any surprise. Christina was adamant that it had to be Dirty because Dirty was such a strong introduction to her new image. Like, Dirty is the introduction of X-Tina. There's no other song on that album that could have introduced X-Tina the way Dirty did. And ironically, Dirty is Christina's first single to not reach the top 20 on Billboard. And I think that you can just chalk all of that up to the world not being ready for it. Like, we just weren't, we were not emotionally mature enough to understand this album for any anything beyond what it looked like on the surface you know what I mean even with her like beating us over the head with these lyrics we still didn't really get it like we were so fucking dense in the early 2000s even the music publications that defended the album still said like oh you know it's, it's a great album you guys are actually going to like the album but it, it does suck that she released Dirty first because it doesn't mean anything. She should have released uh, Beautiful or The Voice Within because those are ballads and that's what Christina Aguilera does. And people just didn't get it. Also, looking back, it's so hard to imagine this era not being introduced by Dirty. Like, I think that there would have been much less of an appreciation for Beautiful had Dirty not been the first single. And I think the shock of that iconic music video and the imagery, and the way she looked, and it just, it felt like, I don't remember what it was that I was reading, but they, or some, maybe I was watching something, 
but they said like the music video it felt like an event and even when you watch it now it still feels like an event like it feels like this i'm watching a pop culture moment i'm watching something that's important that will stand the test of time that is just like it's just classic pop culture it's also got that early 2000s david la chapelle thing where it's just like messy creative chaos it's this artistic fucking gritty insane chaos but I definitely think the release of these two songs back to back created this perfect balance and I think it forced people to sort of put their guard down and allow this album to mean more than Christina Aguilera in a thong. Now I'm going to read this super long excerpt from Rolling Stone because the article was released directly after Dirty and right before the release of the actual album. It's long as fuck. I, I mean, literally several pages. So buckle up, but I'm telling you, it's so good. And this isn't even all of it. I'm saving the rest of it for next week. It says it was late one night in Miami towards the end of last year that Christina Aguilera discovered the therapeutic joy of smashing things. She had recently split up with her boyfriend, George Santos, one of the dancers in her live show, and her first true love, and she wasn't happy. She had taken her rage and sorrow out to a nightclub, and now that she was there, she didn't quite know what to do with them. I was in a weird headspace, she recalls. I was not myself for sure. I was kind of running around crazy, experiencing things for the first time. A friend of hers diagnosing her dilemma led her away into one of the club's back rooms, where he handed her a champagne glass. Break this, he told her. What? She responded. Throw it. He took his glass and hurled it against the wall by way of demonstration. So she did the same thing. And as it shattered, something within her quelled. That was the first time I had really broken things, she says, and it felt so good. That night, they smashed about two boxes of champagne glasses, and afterwards, she felt fucking great. Aguilera has hardly been cleansed of anger since that day, nor is she such an unconflicted soul that she's unable to conjure up plenty of other feelings. Bitterness, paranoia, insecurity, a desperate need for approval. Without it, life is much simpler and cleaner, but maybe she's learning how to deal with it all. The recording of her new album, Stripped, was not simple, steady, or speedy and there were difficult times along the way. One particular day, she found herself feeling increasingly irritated, and her irritation wouldn't subside. She had learned various ways of relieving stress in the, in the studio, chucking tea bags against the studio walls, for instance, or pretending that she was in a horror movie, going crazy. The songwriter Linda Perry, who collaborated on four of Strip's songs, suggested Aguilera simply scream at the top of her lungs. But sometimes none of these things was enough. Now she knew another way. She asked the runner to go shopping for her to bring back lots of glasses and lots of dishes, and she would do the rest. Today, there is a meeting to be held in the Los Angeles Hayes. In the 20th floor offices of Aguilera's manager, Irving Azoff, to choose pictures for her CD sleeve. She is late, but then, as far as I can work out, she's always late. Eventually, I will ask her about this, and she will look up at me surprised. She'll then laugh and say, oh boy, that's my worst quality. Though she will then temper this by explaining that it's just that she so often wakes up late and that she's always relying on other people's transportation because though she has a driver's license, she doesn't like to drive in Los Angeles. It's how she avoids lawsuits and things like that and etc. <laughs> After an hour and a half, she finally arrives. The photos under consideration for Strip's front cover show her topless. Her hair extensions flailing in front of her breast just enough for decency. She studies some of the shots. She puts one hand on one picture covering the face. With the other hand, she covers the picture from the waist down. 
My stomach looks good in that one, she says. It's so curvy. The designer Jerry argues against a close-up of Aguilera that she likes. It makes your head look too small, she says. I like the expression on that, Aguilera counters. It makes me look a little tormented, like I'm thinking about something. Aguilera rejects a shot Jerry favors. I don't think it looks like me, she says. It looks like an opera singer or something. It's very pretty, comments Jerry. And Christina says, yeah, I don't like pretty. Fuck pretty. <laughs> As most people have already noticed, the Christina Aguilera who appeared in 1999 singing Genie in a Bottle... The one presented as the latest shiny-eyed, blonde-haired, innocently flirty, nicely behaved, demurely, and deniably coquettish teen pop songstress no longer exists. On the day we first talk, when she is, in quotes, dressing down, her hair is partly covered by a do-rag with a pony baseball cap perched on it, and she is wearing a pink pajama top with the word gotcha on it, and a pair of combat pants hanging open several inches at the front to reveal much of her underwear which say skimpies. It's not like a thong, she comments. This is boys' underwear. It's comfortable shit. <laughs> On her left arm, just above her elbow, she is wearing an armband that says 69. I just think it's funny, she says. <laughs> I just think it's funny, she says. I don't wear, like, long floral skirts down to my ankles. This is just me, I guess. Recently, her clothing choices have been much remarked upon. Columnist Liz Smith has stated both she and Britney Spears have come to the MTV Video Music Awards and hooker get-ups. Yeah, I heard something about that, Aguilar says. Who cares what I wore to a damn award show? It's the VMAs. I was happy with my outfit. I'd wear it again. Reading about it afterwards, I will say, was the first time I had seen the term under cleavage. Oh yeah, I was giving reverse cleavage, she says. Shoo, I was up there doing my thing. <laughs> and it felt very comfortable. <laughs> I love reading the word shoot. Um... It's just a bit of clothing. If I was in a back alley at midnight and wearing that get up, like I could see, yes, that's a little bit hookerish, but I'm in a damn award show. I'm an entertainer. I'm playing the part. I don't go out to clubs like that. That's only that's the only time I dress up like that, hookerish or whatever she said. When you get shit for stuff like that, I say, what do you think? She says, I like being different. I've never followed the pack and I'm not going to change now because in some magazine I made the list as, what was it? One of the skunkiest haired celebrities. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> One of the skunkiest haired celebrities, she roars with laughter. Oh, she adds, but I was the funkiest skunk of them all. So halfway through the interview, she goes on to meet with Scott Storch to go over some music changes. And um, they get in this weird argument because he took a song that she really liked and he like cleaned it up. And, you know, her whole thing with this album is she wants it to sound stripped down and, you know, very unedited and, you know, not polished. And he turned it into like a pop song. And <laughs> she said that he turned it into an annoying Diane Warren-y kind of song. Um, and I just thought that was really funny because Diane Warren produced her first biggest hit. Later, she goes to the dance auditions for her latest music video, a single called Dirty. She's, of course, late. In a large, featureless room at the Millennium Dance Complex, a hundred or so dancers await their chance. She keeps complaining that they're not dancing dirty or hard enough and that the girls are being too feminine. It's all about the stank, she says. This is a stank video. <laughs> While the fourth group of men is lining up, Aguilera leans over. 
Aguilera leans over and gestures discreetly at one of the dancers, who at the same time is glancing over at her. That's my ex-boyfriend, she says. You make him audition, I sputter. She grins, hell yeah. After two months of auditions, he is still on the, sh the final short list. Eventually, he will make the video. In the car, Aguilera and Allison, her assistant, discuss what they've seen. This is amazing. Some of those guys are really cute, Aguilera says. I thought that that white girl was really good, the freestyler, says Allison. And Christina goes, yeah, I guess we should have at least one white person in the video, right? I ask, was he literally your first love? And she says, yes, before that, I always loved to hear love stories of it working out. But for me, I was so focused on my career and I looked at it like, gushy girls, she's weak, she's vulnerable. But in the end, when I let myself go a little bit, it was the most beautiful thing to want to do things for someone else. He was my first real experience sexually. I mean, you can fool around, there's bases and all that to get to, but that was my first time. He was my first everything. So then it must have been weird that your first love was someone you employed? Yeah, that was more weird for him than me because he was a very independent, Puerto Rican, headstrong, do-it-for-myself kind of guy. So it was hard for him it was hard for him that his girlfriend is paying his way. And it's my house, you know, my cook, all of my things. When she finished touring, they moved into her Los Angeles house. She loved having someone to come home to, but it didn't last too much longer. She tells me about one of several songs on her album that relate to him, Unappreciated. It's about a girl who has been in a relationship for a number of years and the newness has definitely worn off and he can't turn his head away from the TV and you don't lay awake anymore talking about dreams and stuff. I think I felt a little unappreciated sometimes because I gave a lot, specifically trying to make him feel good. Not long after this bad relationship, further unsettled by a falling out with two confidants, Aguilera had what she described as a breakdown. Her family flew out to Los Angeles to nurse her through her recovery. It was a really hard time for me, she says. Anything just set me off. I almost wanted to, you know, hurt myself. And it was the first time I had ever had thoughts like that. I had a lot of pain and anger. And the thing that she's talking about is apparently, and this is something that I didn't know either, but one of her best, best friends during this time signed a deal to write a tell-all about the secrets of her life or something, which is like insane. Um, and that sent her into this like low-key emotional breakdown. And I think that I'm going to end it here. There's so much to talk about with Stripped. So we're going to have to hang it up next week. Of course, we have to talk about Beautiful and Can't Hold Us Down and all of the other singles. Um, and like I said earlier, if you guys are into the idea of doing bonus content where we review these albums and give them the true... I mean, because I can't go through every song on Stripped, but it deserves it. So if you're into that, let me know and I will get right on it because then we can immediately get into the the first the first album i think i should stop recording i love you guys so much i will see you next week thank you so much for listening to me ramble once again bye thank you for listening to dunzo this podcast is a part of the solid listen network please take a moment to rate review and subscribe if you haven't already also, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. 
Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.